Today we're going to be in John chapter 10. Um, John chapter 10 verses uh, 22 through 30. So if you have a, a Bible in front of you, great. Uh, if you have one on your phone, open that up too. John 10, 22. At that time, uh, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. <clears throat> it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not amongst my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they never will perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one who is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is God's word. Every winter we celebrate, uh, in the Christian tradition, we celebrate Christmas. And uh, generally, it's about the birth of Christ, uh, and, but in our society, it's become far more commercial, and that's just what happens over time. Um, and, uh, but there's also another holiday that occurs as well. Uh, it's the Jewish holiday of the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, as they call it. Well, it's, it's interesting to note that that holiday really gets its uh, genesis and its beginnings uh, from the Feast of Dedication, which is the time in which Jesus... Uh, was walking through the temple at this time. What I noticed in this passage this morning and why it makes why it's interesting uh, is that um, this particular time of the year was winter and we always think of Israel as being a very warm place and you know they walk around with sandals and stuff but it's winter so maybe they had closed toe sandals. I don't know. I don't have any idea. Oh and by the way Dave I don't know when it's not okay to wear white so we're not going to cover that in a sermon series. I just wanted to make, make that known. But the, the setting of Jesus' interaction with the, the Jews in this particular passage is important. Like I said, the time of the year is the Jewish festival of dedication, which is kind of a proto-Hanukkah. It was really a celebration of this guy named Judas Maccabeus, who was uh, uh, known for cleansing the temple after it was defiled by Syrian invaders in B.C. 164. So basically what you have is this guy named Judas Maccabeus, who was known as the Hammer. I, listen, I used to watch pro wrestling as a kid, and there was a guy named Greg the Hammer Valentine. He was part of a tag team, and he was awesome. And he was just this blonde dude, and he'd come out with these giant forearms and smash you. That was his whole thing. He was known as the Hammer. Can you imagine having that? I mean, you had all these names in the Bible that you were known as the Hammer. And what he did is he took back the temple to these Syrian invaders, come in, and he cleansed them out. He got them all out. Where Hanukkah comes in is this festival of lights because there was, uh, they held up in this temple for a particular period of time and they only had enough oil in their lamps for a day or two, but it lasted eight days instead. And so they celebrate that as well. But what's interesting here is that Jesus being in the temple at that time for that particular celebration probably prompted the Jewish people uh, to uh, ask the questions that they did. Because in the same sense as Judas Maccabeus was happened to be in the temple at that time, now Jesus shows up in the temple at that time for that celebration. And their minds are going, wait a minute. 
We've kind of got an idea of what this guy's been doing. We know what his teachings have been. And now, here he is in the temple. Is he the one? Is he Messiah? Is he the Maccabean hammering Messiah that we've been waiting for? Because as we know, the Jews have been under occupation in Rome, or and Rome has, has basically taken over their uh, country, uh, and uh, as well as all these other countries in the Western world. And... Um, they don't like it. They don't want to be oppressed. They want to live as a free people. I get it. So is Jesus the one? So the questions they ask matter. The commentaries all mention that these men that uh, were asking Jesus these questions were obviously Jews, but most likely they were the religious experts, the Pharisees. They were well-educated in what to look for in Messiah. They understood the scriptures inside and out. They, they were like walking biblical commentaries. Not only did they understand the actual words, but they also understood all of the commentaries as well. So they have been looking. They have these filters that says, we're on Messiah watch. We're hoping at any time he's going to pop up. And, and over time, before Jesus, there were all of these different you know, Messiah guys. And they'd come up, they'd flame out, and they would go back. And they would usually be killed by the Romans, or they would just their movements would flame out. So here's another one. In a sense. And now Jesus is walking through uh, at the time of the Feast of Dedication. And they're like, hey, this could be it. All right, guys, gather around. Let's ask this guy some questions. Let's tell us plainly, they say. But in addition, not only were they uh, Pharisees, but most of them might have been part of the Sanhedrin, which was basically like the Supreme Court of the Jewish world, the High Court of Justice and the Supreme Council of all of ancient Jerusalem. So in that moment, you have Jesus, who is possibly the Messiah. And now you have the religious and political arms of the Jewish society all asking him, tell us plainly, are you the one? Are you the one? Now, there are some folks who thought, well, they're asking this question so they can stone him. So they can go, they can kick him out so you blaspheme or we're going to go ahead and get out so we can ruin you because you're not it. But I think in, another way to look at it is this way, that there's this palpable excitement around Jesus. Jesus has been turning water into wine, walking on water, healing the sick, uh, uh, casting out demons. He has been turning the religious world and political world on its head. He has all of the makings of what they consider to be Messiah. And they're like, please, just tell us. Are you him? There's this excitement that they've been longing for someone to lead the hammering of the Romans. Please let there be another one like him. You can recognize that. I mean, even in our own country, we've had times of, 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 uh, of things that have gone wrong and we have hoped for someone to stand up and go, will you beat back the other people, you know, the other party and, and bring in the cool and bring in the awesome and the good and bring us back to the glory days. Why is Jesus that guy? But Jesus does something really remarkable here. The Messiah that Jesus represents here and presents to them is the opposite of what they want. They want a hammer. They want a military political leader with strong arms and like giant and ripped and, and you can you know, swing a sword and, and just, pardon the use, but it does, they want Sauron from, <laughs> from Lord of the Rings. They want a guy with a giant thing and just blow people up. And that's what they want. But Jesus presents this kind of Messiah that is, has restorative words and deeds. You notice that Jesus doesn't go around destroying things. 
He goes around resurrecting things. He goes around fixing things. He goes around changing people's hearts and minds. Jesus is always uh, 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 doing that. He tells things sideways. That, uh, in a sense, he says, yes, uh, my, my words and my deeds speak for me. He actually says here, I told you and you didn't believe. Now, Jesus never really came out and said, hi, I'm sorry, nice to meet you. And he handed him his card. He doesn't do that sort of thing. But what he does do is he does all these great teachings and these things that really should turn people's ears toward him. He says that his words and deeds testify to who he is. It's vague. I get it. But it's Jesus. And that's his thing. That's what he does. And we just kind of have to get used to it. He tells it slant. He tells it sideways. But Jesus is not only a, a, a Messiah of restorative words and, disease, uh, and deeds, he's also the shepherd Messiah, not a warrior Messiah. The Jewish culture then wanted a warrior Messiah. They wanted somebody to come in with military might, kick all the oppressors out so they could have their own country and live in freedom and peace in the land of milk and honey. But that's not the kind of Messiah that he is. Jesus is a shepherd Messiah. Look at the words he uses. You see, number one, he knows his sheep. He knows that who are his apprentices, his disciples. He knows who they are and what they're like and how best to meet their needs. I love when he says that, my sheep know my voice. He says, and I know them. The word know here is not the word that means like, a, uh, like just simple intellectual knowledge, but like how I know you and how you know me. There is a friendship. There is a relationship there. There is something there. Jesus is a shepherd Messiah, not a warrior Messiah. Jesus also speaks to people as if uh, he's the one in charge of their care. He has a calming voice sometimes. He has a soothing voice sometimes. He also has a voice of correction, but also of love. When Jesus, as the shepherd Messiah, speaks, his people are tuned into his voice, and then they respond appropriately. Jesus goes on here and seems to say that those who apprentice with Jesus are secure, lacking no good thing because he is the provider of all of their needs. It recalls the Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And the word here for at the end of it is, that is I shall not want. It's better translated, I lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And he's saying all those who apprentice with him, all those that follow him, all that listen to his voice, find that all of their needs are met in some way. They lack nothing. In fact, he goes on to use these words like they are unsnatchable. By the way, that is not a word that is actually in my word dictionary. It comes up. It's, I made it up. You can use it. Trademark me. Okay? All right. So it's unsnatchable, meaning that you cannot take them from God's hands. Once they are there, that's it. It's like concrete. You're solid. You're in. Unsnatchable. No matter what happens to them, no matter what circumstances come my way, Jesus is saying all his followers are unsnatchable. And then he goes on to say that they are also undestroyable. He says they are never fully, completely undone. No matter what they go through or what kind of circumstances they deal with, they are never undestroyed. They are never destroyed fully. In a sense, he's saying that they are living life unto the age. They are living in the flow of God's life and presence. Remember, Jesus is God, so to be with Jesus is to be with God. But thirdly, Jesus is the Messiah who's in step with God, equal to God. Now, if we went down one more verse, we'll find that when Jesus says, uh, the Father and I are one. Now, in our context, we're like, okay, cool. 
But in that context, they're like, blasphemy. Immediately. So on one hand, their ears are raised up going, oh, maybe he's Messiah. And then he goes, I'm equal with God. And they're like, oh, sorry, that's done. Get some rocks. It's time to go. We're going to be the hammer now. We're going to hammer this guy into death. His statement was enough to cause the Jews at that time to attempt to execute him for the sin of blasphemy. They took it serious. The name of God is revered. In Hebrew, you won't find any Jews actually saying the name of God. They'll either call it Hashem, which means the name, or they'll use Adonai uh, in place of Yahweh. We Christians, we're, we're cool with Yahweh. But for the Jews, they revere the name so much that they don't want to defile it in any way. And for somebody to come in and go, me and the Father are one. It calls back to Deuteronomy 6, 4, which says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's saying he's putting himself on equal footing with the Father. Not only is he calling him Father, but he's saying, I'm the Son, and I'm out of the same substance. He says it anyways, though. Knowing that they're going to be upset about it. Knowing that they're going to attempt to kill him for the sin of blasphemy. But why would Jesus, who has been so truthful and on the side of truth and doing all things for the glory of God, say something so radically crazy to be a lie? Why would he make this up? He's not. Jesus is revealing who God is and what he's like. He says, I and the Father are one. We are in lockstep. He moves, I move. We are one essence. And he says that the Father, he calls Jesus, he calls God the Father. It's this very relatable and very intimate revelation of God. So, what does this mean for us? Well, here's what I'd say I think that Jesus' equality with God, his being of the very same essence as God, as being very God of God in the flesh, as we say, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, through him all things were made. This Jesus. His equality with God gives his words and deeds ultimate weight so that he can be believed and followed. Let me say that again. Because of who Jesus is and who he's claiming to be, it gives his words divine weight so that he can be believed in and followed. Number one, Jesus is equal with God. Now, I'm going to be a little mysterious here. I'm not going to explain this because you can't. I love the Greek Orthodox tradition because sometimes they just don't say a whole lot about this. They're like, Jesus is God, and they leave it at that, and they let the mystery just be there. They let that tension of how is it possible that a human being could be divine at the same time? How is it possible if God is everywhere and now Jesus is here, and how could he be God and God still be God? I don't get it. I'm not going to try to explain it. But whatever it is, Jesus is of the same stuff. Jesus is of the same divine essence as God. And it is not something that is easily explained. It's not saying, how did you make that table? Well, you use wood and nails and glue and stuff. Well, how did Jesus become, how is Jesus God? I don't know. He just was. Just is. That's what he claimed. So either he is or he isn't. I'm on the side that he is. But what we recognize here is that he also, he does what he hears God commanding. So he is in this deep, deep, intimate relationship that is unlike any other human history. If he wasn't with the same essence with God, how could he hear him so much when all of these other humans have a real hard time with it? One of the most interesting aspects of Jesus' ministry is that he was so perfectly in tune with the voice of God and heard him and then he acted. Jesus never did anything unless he heard the Father say so. He doesn't move unless the Father moves. 
It's like this amazing dance. Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God, as it says in one of the letters that Paul wrote. So Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is God. That is a core belief that we must all recognize and wrestle with. And if he is, and he is, in my opinion, since Jesus is God, though, his deeds and his teachings are divine. What he says is basically, thus saith the Lord. His teachings are divine, hold divine weight. His, his words are literally the words of God. Literally on the same level as when, Jesus, when God said, let there be light and there was that is Jesus saying those things. That is God himself. And so anytime Jesus speaks and works and does, it's as if God himself was doing it through him in him. Therefore, they must be paid attention to carefully and instructively. Jesus' words and deeds are telling you, telling you and I what God is about, who he is, what he is like, what life looks like in his way, day to day, every day. Jesus says that those who are his people who take his words and deeds seriously will contemplate them, will dwell and savor and integrate them into their very being. If Jesus is God, which I believe he is, then his words hold far more weight than anything else we will ever hear in this life. And since Jesus is God and his words are basically divine speech, he can be trusted to care for us in all areas of life. Now, we're, we're probably okay with the whole idea of that Jesus is God. We're pretty much okay with the idea that all he says are divine, and we're good with that. We can ascend to that. But, oh my gosh, how do I know that all of my needs are going to be taken care of? How do I know that I can live this, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing? How, how do I ascend to that? Last week, remember, we talked about this. We said that nothing can take us from God's love. That's core belief. Jesus emphasizes that here as well. Here is Jesus, God incarnate, saying that we are unsnatchable, undestroyable, totally secure. We are in the hands of the shepherd. We are the sheep of his hands. Now listen, I get it. Trusting God is often a very, very difficult thing to do, especially when our circumstances come. We all feel the effects of the valley of the shadow of death. We all feel hunger. We all feel the poverty of soul and poverty of wallet. We all feel uh, relational conflicts and things that send us to the bottom of the bottomless pit. To the places where we go, how long will I have to endure the, the, the death places? But God does not leave us. And that's what he's saying here. He says the shepherd takes us into those places, leads us in and leads us out. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. That's what he's saying here. And he can be trusted to care for us in every area of life from our emotional, our emotional, physical, and spiritual needs. All of it, all encompassing, the Lord is our shepherd. And though he is uh, with us as shepherd, he will navigate us into his ultimate presence. So his words can be trusted and God can be trusted to care for us in all areas. And since Jesus is God, those who follow him must align their lives and manner of living to imitate his words and deeds. If Jesus is God and all of his words are divine and that he's going to care for us in every possible way and so that one day we can actually ascend to the whole idea that we lack for nothing, then we can actually take our lives and reframe them and readjust them to do as he did. 
In the same way that Jesus did what the Father commanded, followers of Jesus must do as Jesus did. Remember that Jesus' works and words were the beatitude words. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are, 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 are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are those uh, uh, who uh, you know, do good, and, and blessed are those who, who uh, you know, are pure in heart. That's Jesus stuff. That's the way Jesus lived. That's the, that's the model for us to follow. His words are restorative words, grace, love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. These are Jesus' words and works. He was all about mercy and equalizing human beings and elevating the poor and humbling the proud so that we could be on the same level playing field. He served the oppressed and was subversive but not violent. He told it slant and left room for mystery. This is the model of our lives that we need to change. We need to move away from our selfish, self-promoting uh, self, uh, uh, sort of lifestyle. We need to move away from the me first sort of thing to let me, how can I serve you? Because if we are without lack, then there is nothing that anybody can give us that we don't already have from him. And so I can give to you completely and freely. Jesus commands us to let go of our former way of life and live the life that he would if he were us. This is the Jesus life. This is what it means to follow. Jesus is not saying that we are sheep in the sense that we're just kind of mindless wanderers, which I guess in some ways is true, but he's calling us to be apprentices, people who do as he does. The whole idea of being a disciple is to be one who not just knows the Bible, but simply who knows their God and follows him and imitates him in every aspect. So how do we respond? Number one, Deeply pay attention to Jesus' words in Scripture. We need to deeply pay attention to Jesus' words. Let's be honest. There is much that Jesus says to us that offends us. It offends our manner of living. It offends our, our wallets. It offends uh, uh, who uh, we deem to be worthy of love. There's much that Jesus says that really does not... Uh, uh, conform to our way of living but it really needs to be the other way around we need to look at Jesus' words and go I see the lack I see what I'm not doing I need to pay attention to them but not just as things that challenge us but uh, but like water like food basically Jesus' words are the things that nourishes our souls there are things that we need to pay attention to and consider what God is telling you when I was writing that line I remember the movie The Color Purple one of my favorite movies of all time. And in the movie, it introduces a character who is a, a preacher's kid. And she has gone uh, really far away from God and gone far, far away from her father. And he is angry at her. He's a preacher. And there's this song that they're singing in the, in, in the church. God's trying to tell you something. And out in the distance, she's coming home singing the same song leading all these sinners into the church. It's a beautiful scene. But God's trying to tell you something. That's the song. In the same way that when we, uh, Jesus is speaking, God's trying to tell you something. The divine weight of God's words are bearing upon our souls. We need to learn to listen. We need to learn to dwell. We need to learn to savor. We need to learn to contemplate. Sometimes this looks like meditating on a word in scripture that just that God is just hammering home. 
Sometimes it looks like mulling over things for a while. Sometimes it looks like coming back to the same passage day after day after day because God's not done talking to you about that one thing. We're so quick. We're so, let's say, on my reading plan. But now sometimes God just wants us to sit and be there and go, what does it really mean that you are the bread of life? Deeply pay attention to Jesus' words. Less, secondly, trust in God's care for you. Trust in the good shepherd's care for you. Did you know today is Good Shepherd Sunday? I didn't know that either. I found that out today. I thought, well, that's cool. At least I'm preaching on the right thing. Trust in Jesus' care for you. Let's be honest. Apprentices of Jesus are not immune to the evils and the tragedies of living in this world, but God does not abandon us. We are not alone. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are, what? With me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. No matter what you go through, Jesus has got your back. He's got your front, he's got your back, and all the way around. He's got this thing. No matter, even if it feels like everything is falling apart, it's okay. God is with you in the midst of it. When everything hits the fan or the desert's too hot and dry, trust in God. Lean not on your own, your own understanding or your perception of things, but acknowledge that God has you by his hand and he will not allow you to be totally undone. And lastly, follow his example and how to live day to day. If we dedicated ourselves to living as Jesus did in all areas of life, we would become an irresistible witness of God's love and mercy and grace for all people. Let that sink in for a moment. So much of our political discourse is all about, oh, how do we get our right person in there? How do we do this? How do we upend the the social order? How do we change things? How do we get the right laws so that we can live right and free and whatever? Jesus comes at it from a completely opposite way and says, what if you lived the way I lived? Don't depend upon a government. Don't depend upon social order. What if you lived Jesus' way? Love people grace and mercy. You guys were neighborly to one another as you already are, but even further, we would become an irresistible witness to God's great love for people. All people. But this will only happen if we dedicate ourselves to doing life Jesus' way. And that takes a lifetime. Trust me. I'm better than I was, but I'm not as good as I can be. We're on the way, but if we continue to dedicate our way to doing life Jesus' way, we will find that we are becoming more and more like the Good Shepherd. In the fall, I want to tell you that we are going to be going through um, uh, some of the practices that Jesus did, and we're going to learn together on how to do those things so that we can live the Jesus way. Not just in our minds and not just in our theological understandings, but practical things. How can we, what, let's do the things that Jesus did. So, your mission, should you choose to accept it on this Good Shepherd uh, Sunday. I would encourage you this week to uh, really dig into Psalm 23. Now, many of you probably heard it and memorized it. Most of you could say it by by heart. I know I can. Um, But take it to heart. Really, really, really dwell on it as best you possibly can. Amen.